we are working through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, uh, Matthew recorded for us, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So take your Bibles and turn there to Matthew 7. Uh, We will be in verse 13, starting in verse 13 today. As you're turning there, it's on page 812 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have your own copy, grab the Pew Bible, turn to page 812. Uh, You might have heard of Robert Frost and his somewhat famous poem in English, uh, The Road Not Taken. You maybe not have read the whole thing. I bet you will resonate, recognize the last three lines. The road, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The, the poem is much longer than that. <clears throat> that's the part that sticks, I think, for us Americans. Because we like to think of ourselves as those who take the roads less traveled. Go the hard way. Uh, the poem itself is not quite as clear that that was the best way for him to go. But it captures the idea that Our life is full of decisions. We can't see the outcomes of these two paths that are before us. We have to pick one. And once you pick one, in many cases, you've ruled out the other. And Jesus gives us that same decision. He gives his disciples on the Judean hillside and us today the same decision before us. He says there are choices we must make in life. And sometimes those choices are mutually exclusive. You cannot pick both. Which just sticks in our craw as modern Americans. Because we really want to have it all. We want to leave all the options as open as they can be. But I pray that today as we read through Matthew 7, 13 through 23, as Jesus begins to conclude the Sermon on the Mount here, that we will either be encouraged to stick with the decision we've made to follow him, or we'll be encouraged to make that decision, follow him for the rest of your life in discipleship. So Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. we'll end our, our meditation together today. So we think about the two ways that Jesus presents before us there in verse 13. He's, he's the first the beginning, verse 13 is the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He summarized the entire sermon in verse 12. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do for them, because this is the law and the prophets. You can do all that God commanded you to do if you commit to do that. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Treat others as you would have them treat you. So we, we talked about that last week. And now he stops telling us how to live. 
which he's done five, six, and seven, and starts telling us to be serious about living that way, that we have to choose to walk in the way that he has called us to live. He's been showing us how to live if we're truly blessed, like Psalm 1, the themes of the wisdom literature, right? There's two paths, two ways. You know how he closes with four contrasts, like a good wisdom teacher sitting on the mountain instructing his disciples. Uh, there's two ways we read about, two trees we read about, two kinds of fruit that we read about in our passage, and then next week, Lord willing, two builders at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> We'll look at those first three today, and Lord willing, next week we'll finish with that last one. Two ways, two trees, and two kinds of fruit. As we think about this, for us, that Jesus is pressing on us today, I pray, pressing on us, that the only way to life is the way Jesus walked. The only way to life is the way Jesus walked. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Plenty of people will try. The only way to life is the way Jesus walked. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <clears throat> so the first thing is the way there, the two ways. We're thinking about God's way. <clears throat> and he mentions the false prophets, so we'll think about good guides. <clears throat> and then recognize them by their fruit, so we'll think about good fruit. So there's the three contrasts we'll consider today. God's way, good guides, and good fruit. God's way, good guides, good fruit, as we, I pray, Listen to Jesus and walk the way he walked. Tune out anyone who would tell us otherwise. So first, God's way. Uh, Jesus encourages us and urges us, commands us, really, find the good way. Enter by the narrow gate in verse 13. For the way, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So find the hard way. He pictures those two ways that are started with two gates, a wide gate that's broad and expansive, lots of room there, a narrow gate that's constrained and tight and hard to walk. He contrasts those two ways and gates that go together to capture what Jesus wants us to hear and respond to. It means what it means to hear and respond to Jesus. The the gate is the place of entrance. That's the place of decision. I'm going to go in. I'm going to stay out. I'm I'm all, I'm yes, it's yes or no, right? This is the place of decision. And the way is the image of a path to walk. This is day to day, moment to moment, decade after decade, patterns and habits and lifelong pursuits. And they they all go together, right? You can have the wide gate that's easy to go through and the wide way that's easy to walk. Or the narrow gate that you have to find, constrained way that's hard, that's difficult. And Jesus says, pick the narrow one, the cramped one, the hard one. In Robert Frost's poem, the ways are fairly identical. Not entirely, but fairly. Jesus' ways are not at all identical. <clears throat> he urges us to pick the one that looks hard and uninviting. It seems like it will be more work and give fewer options. If you only had the initial impression, right, the wide, roomy way would be the obvious, easy choice. Jesus wants us to see is that his initial impressions are not the whole picture. It was tempting to say looks can be deceiving, but he's not trying to be deceiving, actually. He's saying that actually it looks exactly right. The wide way is easy. The narrow gate does lead to a hard path. You're not deceived at all. In fact, Jesus is very clear that following him will be difficult. He's very honest about that. In other contexts, he will be, be very clear to his disciples. Count the cost. Know what you're getting into. <clears throat> Because it will be, just thinking about the sermon that he's told us so far, it will be easier to nurse your anger than seek reconciliation. It will be natural to indulge your sexual desires rather than aggressively root out your sexual sin. It will be easy 
It will feel right to evade your promises when they make it life harder on you. <clears throat> and it will be hard to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Obedience to Jesus comes down to a choice between faithfulness to him and eating. Everything in the world, including your own body, will scream at you. Disobey Jesus. Keep that paycheck. Put food on the table. And Jesus will say, don't worry about what you're going to eat. See God's kingdom. That will be hard. It is a harder way to walk, to be discipled to Jesus, to be learning how to live with him. And then add to all that, <clears throat> I started the sermon, blessed are those who, who are persecuted. The expectation that we can have that certainly Satan will be opposed to us. And very often the world around us will. Family and friends will think we're out of our mind, just like Jesus' family and friends thought he was out of his. So the song put it this way, fighting's within and fear's without. That's the way that Jesus wants you to take. So it's not that it looks deceiving, it is hard, but he is saying it's take the long, the long Robert Frost can see where he sees where he goes past. Jesus is telling you where he goes past. He can't see. You and I can't. You and I can't. We can't tell. Can't tell. He, knows. he knows. He's telling you, he's telling you the wide way will end in destruction, eternal destruction. It's easy. It's roomy. It's comfortable. And you'll die that way forever. The narrow way, the hard way will lead to life. And it's the only way that leads to eternal life. Living the way Jesus called to us is hard and fruitful. So I think uh, one of the things that is experienced in my own life and some of the conversations I've had, I have a particular conversation I think I've mentioned before with a scholar from China when I was in Louisville. He was looking at Jesus' teachings and he was convinced that's what China needed. If everybody loved each other, looked out for each other, they were more committed to each other's good than our own good, man, society would work really well. And his impression as a visiting scholar was that's not at all what China was about. I kind of look at him and say, that's not at all what America's about either. <laughs> I think it's easy to assent that if we all lived that way, life would go well. But then you have to live that way. <laughs> and suddenly it gets really hard. And it gets really easy to make excuses. I'd really like it if everybody else lived that way before I had to live that way. So we see this kind of thing all the time. With, particularly, I mean, it's very obvious with politicians. We love to see our politicians. We love to catch them out in their double standards. So politicians who advocate for policies about wealth sharing or, you know, hardships or trusting or, you know, a kind of wealth redistribution, but they themselves live quite wealthy, expensive lives. You kind of want to say, well, if you think giving your stuff away, you think taking other people's stuff is the way to go, why don't you give yours away? That kind of thing is just present in all of us, isn't it? We naturally want everyone else to make the sacrifices to live before we do. And we are quick not to do for others what we want done for ourselves. So the thing is, you don't, you don't choose that narrow gate because you're convinced the road will be easy. You don't, you don't walk down that path because you think this is going to be the easiest way to go and we're going to get along in life. You might think the outcome would be good if everybody lived this way, but man, for you yourself, everything in you will press against it. And Jesus is saying it, you have to find it. That's the contrast, the narrow gate, the wide gate, the narrow way, the wide way, and those who enter the wide way just enter it, you see. Verse 13. Those in verse 14 who, who enter the narrow gate have had, to, have had to find it. You don't stumble into living the way Jesus has called us to live. You don't naturally drift into faithfulness to God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. We are bent away 
from that kind of love. You'll only do it because you trust Jesus. You'll pick that gate because you think Jesus is telling the truth. At the end of that way is eternal life. Which should put to rest anybody's worries that what Jesus is saying, you sort of earn life by walking the hard way. So Jesus is not saying, prove yourself on the hard way, and God will reward you with eternal life. No, the only reason you walk the hard way is because you've already decided to trust Jesus. You've entered that narrow gate because you can't see how that way goes to life, but you know Jesus told you it does, and so you trust him. If you think that you're just going to walk it hard enough, walk it faithfully enough, that God will reward you, at some point you will grow discouraged and you're very likely to abandon it. But if you're on the hard way because you've entered that gate, because you see Jesus is entirely reliable, he should be totally trusted. Then you'll walk in faithfulness because you trust Jesus. You're saved by faith. That saving faith will persevere in a life of faithfulness to the Jesus you trust. So another way to say what Jesus is saying is here for me to you today is trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Follow him. Hear what he says and embrace it as good and right and just. When he says you must be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect, whole and complete, embrace that and say, yes, that is what I want. Which is another way of saying repent. <laughs> Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Recognize every way you're imperfect, unlike God, and confess and turn from it and learn to live the way Jesus has called us to live. We live that life by faith. And that's, that ties us in to walking with the Lord. It, it cuts out all the other decisions. These ways are mutually exclusive. You, you can't have both. Uh, one of the things earlier in the, the poem that Robert Frost mentioned in that poem is like, I thought, hey, I'll take this way, maybe I'll come back to that other one. But, you know, I kind of know how life works. So if I take this way, what's going to happen is I'm going to take the next way after that, the next way after that. I'm never going to get back here again. This decision, I'm, I'm going to walk down this road. And it's even stronger here. You, you can't walk both ways. You can't try one and then try the other. You will, you will turn your life to Christ and you will see him as trustworthy. Or you will just go along and enter into the broad way that everyone else is walking on. And that is true, let me, let me just be really clear about this too, that's true, even if like what you're doing is rebelling against other ways people live. So there's lots of room on the broad way to live lots of different ways. And so you can see what the previous generations did and say, well, that's wrong, I'm not living like that, I'm living like this. And it can feel very self-righteous or very righteous in that moment. And you think, well, this must be the good way because that was the bad way. But unless your way is to say, I'm following Jesus, I'm turning from sin and trusting in him. You've just found a different part of the broad highway that leads to destruction. I don't think just because you're plowing a different road means you're plowing the right, walking the right road. The only way to life is by listening to and trusting and following Jesus. And that's because only Jesus is God the Son made flesh. And that's the thing. If there's anything to meditate on in Christmas time, it is that, that only Jesus is God the Son made flesh. Only Jesus is the one who knows how all roads end because he is the one who spoke them into existence. He is the word by which they were spoken into existence. 
Only he is the one who took on flesh and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could realize we were on that wide path and say, I think I'll take the narrow one instead. Be welcomed and forgiven. Now, as as, we read in the scripture reading in Deuteronomy, as God said to his people through Moses, there are lots of ways to go wrong. But when you turn and seek and find the Lord with all your heart, he will hear, and you will be saved. So if you're not a Christian today, I mean, if you're here and you, you're wondering, is Jesus worth following? <clears throat> Jesus is clear. You need to count the cost. That's a good question to ask. But be sure you include in your calculation, not just, will it help me get the next step of my life done better? Will he help me get along with my family better or have better mental health? Or uh, find a better stability, you know, for my long-term satisfaction. Make sure you include in your calculation, will he secure me for eternity? Will he restore me to God? Even if life is harder following him now, will he provide access to the throne of grace? And the answer to that, beloved, is yes, he will, and only he can. Count the cost with eternity in view, and choose the narrow gate in the difficult way. It's the only way to life. If you've trusted Christ, you've decided to follow him, and what you found is that life got harder rather than easier. And you're surprised by that. Let me say, you, you might actually be on the right road. That might actually be evidence that you have, in fact, chosen Jesus. If obedience to him has brought hardship into your life you weren't expecting, I should say what Peter said, don't be surprised. The trials that come upon you. Because the path of discipleship in this life, fightings within against our own flesh and fears without against the opposition of the world and Satan, makes life hard. If you find living the Christian life exhausting, (laughs) difficult, and a struggle, That is no sign that you're doing it wrong and very well may be a sign that you're doing it right. You are, in fact, following Christ. But if you're constantly looking for ways to make things easy, comfortable, and effortless, if that is growing to be the value by which you make those decisions, how can I make this easier, more comfortable, and effortless? Let me warn you that you are setting yourself up to be ripe for apostasy and self-deception. There are ways to make life easier. There are wisdom ways that we can act. But if, if that's your goal in life, which is the goal of so much of our culture, you're setting yourself up for apostasy. I'm not guaranteeing you're going to do it. But you're certainly setting yourself up for that. Because Jesus will expect things of you and me, fighting our own sin, resisting the world and the lies, and lies around us. Uh, he will require things of us that will not be easy, comfortable, or effortless. And that's evident in what, what comes next. Let me just say before we get there, those being tempted to walk away, to put your faith in Christ, and something about the wide way, the ways of the world, obedience to Jesus is, is tempting you to abandon the way of discipleship to Jesus. And go on your own. You're thinking of giving up or giving in. Remember the joy set before you. Remember the life that is coming. Meditate on what Paul called the eternal weight of glory. 
will outweigh whatever light and momentary affliction you are feeling. And if you think right now, if what Satan just said to you, this is not light and momentary, whatever affliction or hardship or difficulty you're facing, you need to realize that it is. So how heavy you think that is right now, the weight of glory and life and joy that's coming far out strips it. Because what Paul calls light and momentary afflictions, we would not call light and momentary. And the fact that he recognizes them that way, that they are going to be trivial when you experience the weight of glory that is coming, should help us persevere for the life that is at the end of this path. Meditate on that. That's what Jesus did for the joy set before him. He endured the cross for us. <clears throat> Bring that to mind. Call to mind all that he has done and the way he has walked this path before us. Because there will always be voices inside and outside, inside you and outside of you, inside the church and outside the church, trying to tell you that you can have this life, you can have the good life living the way that God wants you to without repentance, without submission, without constraints, and without opposition. Because the the, the word that's used that that we translate the hard way is literally the, the narrow way, the constrained way. Everything in American instinct says no constraints. Wide and spacious. And following Jesus will require you to make sacrifices and say no and confine yourself to certain, you know, certain careers will be off limits. Certain kinds of promotion in the face of the effect they'll have on your family will be off limits. Uh, certain kinds of freedoms and vacations and retirement plans. I mean, there's all kinds of things that Americans will pursue that will be off limits to Christians because you're using your time and resources and talents to serve the kingdom of God first, because you're devoting your efforts and your energy uh, and the, the waking hours you have to pursuing righteousness and godliness. And there will always be voices that will say, you could have it easier. It could be so much easier. So point two is two trees. Beware of false prophets. Because the way is hard. And in times are hard, it is easy, easy to look for an escape. So Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Starting in verse 15, they come to you in sheep's clothing. So what's a prophet? A prophet is someone who's in God's counsel, someone who uh, is claiming to be uh, with God in his counsel and then to speak for him. Whether it's comfort or rebuke, instruction, command, uh, they, they come and they say, thus says the Lord. Right? This is what God says. They could be false prophets saying false things. They could be true prophets, telling truly the words of God. And of the false prophets, they can be like maliciously false, knowing that they're lying to you. False prophets can also be deceived and think they're telling the truth, think they're really serving God when really they've been deceived. On this side of the resurrection, we can also apply that just as much to false apostles and false teachers. Jesus will come back to this um, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 23 and 24, and warned the disciples there to beware of false Christs. People will come claiming they're the Messiah. And he says, be, beware. There'll be temptations everywhere. John will mention the Antichrist in 1 John that are claiming that the Son of God has not come into the flesh, right? And those false prophets are fairly obvious. Here's what the Bible says. They say the opposite. Not hard. Maybe hard to listen. Maybe hard because of the social dynamics or the relationships you have with those people, to admit it. But what 
Jesus' warning against here are not those obvious ones. We're like, nah, there's no God in heaven. Nah, you can live however you want. Nah, you know. That's easy. Those are clearly people not following Jesus. The ones Jesus warns about are those who come dressed up like sheep, who look like Christians and talk like Christians, who present themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They may mention Jesus, quote the Bible. Depending on what kind of, what strain, strain of people they're trying to appeal to, they'll either talk about love and mercy, or they'll talk about purity and judgment. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They're here to feed themselves. These days, you can find someone calling himself or herself a Christian, teaching you basically whatever you want to hear. If there's a verse in the Bible you want to think doesn't apply to you, you can find a teacher who will give you a reason to think that verse doesn't apply to you. There are obvious false ones. I think they're obvious anyway, like Kenneth Copeland or Creflo Dollar, Paula White, you know, people who are quoting the Bible and say, if you give us your money, they call it seed money, then God will repay you with multiples of that kind of money. If you give us your seed money, God will cure your sickness. If you give us this, sow this seed of money to my ministry, uh, and he'll give you the guidance you need, right? It's ravenous wolves. Give me money, give me money, give me money. I think it's fairly obvious, fairly gross, and yet they deceive countless thousands of people, millions of people. Desperate. Like the super apostles in 2 Corinthians, or the false teachers from 2 Peter 2. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. There are less obvious false prophets too, false teachers, guys who will claim some inside track, or secret Bible knowledge. Secret codes, where we'll take part of the scripture, magnify it to the exclusion of everything else, and then pound it and hammer it and pound it so they get a following. It particularly works if they're at odds with what's going on in the culture. To stoke their egos and build their platforms. They're not really wanting your money, they're wanting your attention. They're wanting your accolades. Maybe they're wanting your social media likes. They're wanting their name to be great. Deconstruction, like, I'm sorry, those guys are like the wolves Paul warns about in Acts 20. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. Say, from among your own number, people will arise like wolves, lead astray if possible. God's chosen. Not so much money as an ego boost. Uh, there's a recent phenomenon called deconstruction. And so the, the thing is not new. The label is new-ish, uh, where... Everybody from Gen X to Gen Z, people who are basically like taking what they've received in terms of church tradition and teaching. They've typically grown up in church, and they're trying to sort out what have, what of all that I've inherited and been taught and grown up with, what does the Bible really teach, and what is just sort of our traditions that may be good or maybe not good, and how can I keep what's good and assess what's bad? And that can be a good process. That can lead to some real clarity, but there's a whole industry now of pastors and booksellers and conferences that will basically aim to helping you take it apart and never put it back together. Deconstruct your faith until there's not one. So you can join them, these deconstructor gurus, in their new freedom. In our own convention of churches, there's currently a wave of Pentecostal influence gaining traction. Pastors who've said things to their churches like, the Holy Spirit has left this church which unless the church is full of unbelievers, just cannot be true. <laughs> but presenting that as a call to, to prayer. And then teaching people they have to pray till God shows up, and then when he shows up, you can't let him leave. As if we're like abductors, <laughs> kidnappers. Like, 
get him in the building and lock the door and don't let him go. Like, we can do that. And it takes work to recognize these false prophets because, like, who wants to be against prayer? Who wants to speak up and say, we should do less prayer meetings? That's not, that's not, you don't do that, right? Because the call to prayer is a good call. Deconstruction can have some real insight. You can see real things that are problems in the way that you've learned to follow Jesus and, and, and adjust them. The, the, the catch him and keep him kind of prayer gurus, they probably really are seeing something real about faithless and stagnant prayer lives in their churches. There's always the possibility that we do need reform. People will come with words from the Lord, whether they're trying to interpret the Bible like I do, right, every week, uh, whether they think they've got some insight in the current culture, whether they're claiming some sort of epiphany. As prophets, to, to correct and redirect and call us back. And, you know, there's always reason to listen at least at first, because there's always ways that we can reform and get better. And so Jesus tells us we have to be alert and know them by their fruit. Because fruit, one of the things about the fruit metaphor is that fruit takes time to show up, doesn't it? It takes years between sapling and fruit bearing sometimes. And you don't know for a while whether this tree you've planted is going to give you good stuff or bad stuff. But when it does show up, beloved, we should take it seriously. When the fruit is evident, we shouldn't explain it away. We should take it for what it is and act as Jesus taught us to act. So he gives this contrasting image of these two trees. He sets it up with a fairly obvious example, right? You don't um, get it right. Grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, right? Every, everybody with eyes in their heads knows thistles don't produce figs. Thorn bushes don't produce grapes. Every plant reproduces according to its kind. And then he takes that obvious illustration and drives it more deeply. You have two identical-looking trees on the outside. You can't tell if the tree is healthy or not. And he's saying the same principle holds. If the crop of fruit is good, the tree's a good tree. And if the crop of fruit is bad, the tree's sick. And just as obvious as it is that you don't go to thorn bushes for grapes, it should be just as obvious to you that you don't go to trees that consistently bear bad fruit and look and expect that fruit to be good. So that illustration helps us, right? He's not talking about one rotten apple or two. He's talking about an otherwise good tree. Every sick tree may have a couple of branches that aren't infected, and every healthy tree may get fruit that gets infected by worms, right? But he's talking about crops of trees. Over time, you can tell if a tree bears good fruit or bears bad fruit. And we should be fruit inspectors. We don't like that. It feels very judgy. Like, that's not really my job. We're just going to live and let it live. That's the American ethos. But Jesus is telling us you've got to watch out for false prophets, and you're going to know them by their fruit. So what do you have to look at? You have to look at fruit. You have to see what's coming out of people's lives and ministries and assess it. You have to do that if you're going to be faithful to Jesus. You can't opt out. We can't opt out. If we're going to obey him and beware of false teachers, if we want to stay on the narrow path that leads to life. So how do we do that together? Well, this is this this work is especially trusted to pastors. That's why Paul established pastors in every church in Acts, why Peter and Paul give us uh, qualifications for elders and overseers, and Peter tells us that part of our job is, as overseers of a church is to, to shepherd the flock, and that's, that's what pastors are supposed to do, among other things, is to know more about maybe what's going on in the world and sort of give, this, give the alarms and, and uh, give the heads up to the, our, our congregations. Um, that's particularly in, in Paul and Titus, says that 
qualification for pastors. Not only establish sound doctrine, but refute what's wrong. But the reason you have pastors is not so they can do that work for you. The reason that the New Testament gives us for, these, for pastors is that we can help each other all grow together. So that we as a church can walk together in faithfulness to Jesus. So um, when Paul confronts false teachers in Galatia, that's the whole letter to the Galatians. When Peter writes against false teachers in 2 Peter. When Jude warns against them in his letter. And when John warns against the Antichrists in 1 John. None of them say, what's wrong with you pastors? How'd you let this happen? All of them address the entire church. Say, this is false. And you, congregations, need to recognize it and identify it and call it what it is. They all address Christians together. <clears throat> and that's especially true. Let me just put a special plug. <clears throat> uh, is if, when you get more input from social media and blogs and podcasts, like the, the connected world we're in, that if you feel, un, you know, that's something that you do and very individually, right? You're curating a podcast list or you're deciding which teachers you like. Let me just urge you, don't do that in isolation. None of us are individually meant to be able to detect all the bad ways that we can go wrong. We are meant to do that together for each other. So talk about what you're listening to. I'm not saying don't listen to podcasts. Please, I benefit from podcasts and blog articles or social media too. But, but talk about those things together. Don't hide that off in a separate part of your life. And let me just say, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not qualified to do fruit inspection, well, then you're also, beloved, not qualified to curate your own podcast list or social media feed. We do this together. You're not expected to be an expert on everything out there. Gerald and I cannot possibly be experts on everything out there. None of us. Now, we don't live your daily lives, interacting with the daily people you do, and you don't do that with us, but we together can help each other grow. We're inspecting the fruit. Let me just be clear today about this. What Jesus is talking about is, is a very harsh language, right? Look at the fruit, and bad trees get cut down and thrown in the fire. This image here comes in the context of looking for false prophets. Now, that, that's, there is application for every Christian's life. And we'll get to think about that more carefully next week. Okay, but what Jesus starts with is, is not people who've just come to faith. So if you're a new Christian, you're like, man, there's lots of bad fruit in my life. Well, let me say you're a new Christian. Are you presenting yourself as a teacher of God's word? Then take a breath. Because <laughs> the warning here is for teachers of God's word, men and women who would stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. That's someone who's claiming to have some spiritual maturity and insight, who's setting himself or herself up publicly as an either interpreter of scripture or a teacher of wisdom. And James is very clear for us, same way Jesus is, that teachers get held to higher standards. Teachers should expect the fruit of their lives to be inspected. It's part of what it means to take on the mantle of pastoring, is to expect that people will look at your life and understand and, and see and Hopefully, that's why churches should put qualified men in that office uh, and recognize qualified women as godly women <clears throat> so that we know who to look at who are godly and to follow and emulate. So if you're worried your life isn't bearing good fruit and you're, you're, you hear this warning, which is a real warning, right? Trees that bear bad fruit get cut down in front of the fire. That's final judgment. That's, that's the destruction at the end of the broad way. And if you're worried about that, look to Christ for mercy and grace. Don't need to fear that you're stuck being a bad tree. You repent and you trust. And you know what God does? He takes bad trees and makes them good. He takes hard hearts and makes them soft. He makes dead lives and brings them to life. That's what Jesus does in the gospel. You don't need to act like you're a teacher. 
you need to act like you're a beginner. Repent and trust, and you will be cleansed. And over the course of your life, by the work of God, through the word and the spirit, you will bear good fruit. That's what he will do in your life. And if you're still worried, if it's still anxious in your soul, let me encourage you. I'd love for you to talk to me. You can talk to Gerald. You can talk to any Christian who you look at and you see they are bearing good fruit. Their life is following Jesus. Let me ask them for guidance and counsel. Let, let them assess and evaluate and pray with you together. So we gotta, we got to watch out. There will always be false teachers. Even just in that list, every apostle writing in the New Testament had something to say about false prophets, false teachers, false Christs. It didn't take long. And it hasn't gone away. So what are we looking for? He says you'll know them by their fruits. What kind of fruit are we looking for? And so the thirdly, uh, the two kinds of fruit, we want to recognize them by their righteousness. Recognize them by their righteousness. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> not lip service, but life service. For a slightly cheesy pastor pun <laughs> or alliteration, not lip service. Not just, just saying Jesus is Lord is not enough. Your life has to reflect that you do the will of God. And we're not left in any doubt what that is. He's not talking about, did you make the right decisions on your career or your college or, you know, the next step in your life. He's talking about everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you putting, Are you putting off anger and putting on reconciliation? Are you putting off sexual lust? Are you going after, going after uh, purity? Are you, uh, Are you uh, uh, seeking first, seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting, and trusting him to provide all of your needs? That's what he, That's what he means by doing the will of the Father. Verse 22 rules out the way that Americans like to evaluate things, and maybe everybody everywhere, but definitely Americans, by spectacle and, um, you know, great feats of supernatural strength. He says, verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? I think we'd be tempted by that. Somebody in the name of Jesus was doing these amazing supernatural things, prophesying, casting out demons, uh, doing mighty works. Great feats of religious power. We are obsessed with spectacle. You might add to that, you know, very, very charismatic, can, can grow a church, can get people to come, you know, need to do the building programs and the budgets. And in verse 22, Jesus is clear. It's like these people are meeting him for the first time. They know his name, and they've done things in his name, claiming his authority. But Jesus says, you were never in my council. You were never before my throne. I never knew you. We see this in Acts, a couple different places. People want the power of the Holy Spirit. They see the power, they want the power, but they don't want Jesus along with it. If these people in verse 22 had known Jesus, if they had had Jesus' name actually put on them, they would have known that what marks someone as Jesus' disciple <clears throat> isn't great feats of supernatural impressiveness, but the righteousness he's been teaching about since chapter 5. A wholeness that makes someone righteous like God our Father is righteous. That's what it means to do the will of God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking there about supernatural spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth. By speaking the tongue of men and angels, they don't have love. It's a noisy gong. 
Great supernatural feats without love, empty. If I have all knowledge, don't have love, it's worthless. He's saying the same thing as Jesus because those who know Jesus love like Jesus. And those who don't love like Jesus don't know Jesus. John is very clear about that in 1 John. So when we appear before Jesus on that great day, when Jesus is assessing us, when our righteousness is on display for him, he will not ask, did you cast out demons and do great miracles? Based on what I'm reading here and what I see in Matthew 25, he will say, did you nurse your anger or did you seek reconciliation? Did you store your treasure in heaven or on earth? Did you keep your word when your commitments got hard or did you weasel out of them? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? That's the fruit that we're supposed to see. Again, new Christians, beginning their walk with Christ, will see it in very small bits. It will grow over the course of your life. You will continue to see evidence of remaining sin in your own flesh. And you and I will continue to confess that and receive mercy. What we're specifically encouraged to inspect here is those who present themselves as teachers of God's word and proclaimers of God's will. Do their lives look like they are walking the narrow way? Do they nurse anger or seek reconciliation? Do they attack sexual sin with a holy violence? Or do they indulge in the passions of the flesh? Do they keep their word even when it gets hard? Or do they find ways to weasel out of commitments based on technicalities? Do they love their neighbor as themselves? And that can be hard work. It's usually long work for it takes time to appear. It takes time to grow. And a consistent crop that makes it evident what kind of tree it is takes even longer. Which is why we as churches should be slow to put people in positions of spiritual authority until there's an evidence of the fruit in their lives. And it's why um, we should be careful and merciful. So some of those deconstructors really want to follow Jesus. They want to know what Jesus really said. And they are willing to submit to his authority. Some of them will be shown, I have no doubt, some of them will be shown to just hate authority. And it started by getting rid of this authoritative tradition, and it will end by getting rid of the authority of the scriptures. How will we know? Well, we just have to watch. You watch their fruit. Some of those... Uh, prayer leaders sincerely want to pray with faith and boldness, and maybe they're just phrasing things badly. Some of them really are just addicted to the emotional highs and the earthly spectacle, I'm sure. How will we know? Well, we'll see the fruit. At some point, the earthly spectacle will cause them to do something against, not just twisted, but against Jesus, and we'll know. And that's really hard with social media and podcasts, because social media, by, by uh, its very nature, is disembodied. You, don't, you can't see their lives. You don't know their families. You can't watch them interact with their neighbors. So it needs extra caution. And I tell you what it certainly means, beloved, is that you, <laughs> you should be checking my life. You should be checking Gerald's life. Jesus is authorizing you right here. You should know your pastors by the fruit in their lives. And claim to speak for God, open his word to you, tell you what the word means. It means this and not that. I mean, how many times have I done that in the Sermon on the Mount? This phrase can be taken lots of ways. Here's some wrong ways it's done, and here's the way you should understand it. I've just I've done that, I think, every sermon during the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're going to listen to that, you should see my life, and you should be able to inspect and say, does he look like he's walking the hard path of discipleship? 
you are authorized by God, by Jesus, to do that. Check words against the Bible. That's the easiest part. I mean, it's hard in its own way. But be looking for our lives. Do you see a crop of righteousness? And if not, we shouldn't be pastors. Do you see a bad fruit or two? Are you concerned about something? Then you should address that before you just write the whole thing off. But listen, if we can't handle pushback and questions about our lives, we shouldn't be pastors. That's built into the very qualifications that if we're prone to anger like that, if we respond without grace and mercy, that's disqualifying on its own. You're authorized to do that. We should do that together, and we should do it. We must not be just nice, polite people who, let, who listen to whatever sounds good. That will not keep us on the path to life walking the hard road of discipleship. But above all, beloved, inspect the fruit of Jesus' life. I mean, he's the one sitting on the mountain teaching them. So inspect his life. Read the eyewitness accounts we have in the Gospels. Consider the lives of those who knew him best in ministry. Those apostles that he named who were with him was 12 that walked the road in the face of deadly opposition. Consider that not one of those who was with him after his death abandoned him after that. Every one of them went to their graves professing the truth of Christ's death and resurrection. Who knew him best, who saw him up close, who watched all of his interactions, heard all of his teachings, saw him when he was exhausted and when he was rested, when he was hungry and when he was full, saw all of it. And even the one who did betray him before his death had to admit that he betrayed an innocent man. He confessed himself that he had sinned and not Jesus. So if there's ever a life that you can inspect for the fruit and reliability, it is Jesus. Because he is, as Gerald said, the capital P prophet, the true prophet, the one who has been in the council of heaven and then came to us to say, this is what the Lord says this is what the Lord is like. This is how you can be brought near to him. It's Jesus, the word who took on flesh to dwell among us. Inspect his life. Do it. He has, there's nothing to, for me to fear by telling you to do that. There's nothing for him to fear by offering to make his life subject to you in four different accounts of his life and then the accounts of all the apostles after that. The son of God entered the narrow gate when he didn't have to by taking on our flesh. And he walked the hard way of faithfulness all the way to his own crucifixion. And he reaped the fruit of eternal life at his resurrection. He has walked it as far as you can walk it and has proved that it leads to life. And he walked it for us so that we could walk it after him, so that we could be forgiven and shown mercy, given the spirit, made new, made bad trees into good trees so that we could bear good fruit so that we wouldn't be cut down on the day of judgment, but welcomed into eternal life. He did that for us. And so the only way to walk to life is the way to follow him, the way he walked before us. And he will come again. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the way that he warns us of here, the broad way that will end in destruction on that day. And the way he offers here, the hard way that will lead to life on that day. So beloved, enter the narrow gate. Give your lives entirely to Jesus. Walk the way he walks, even when it gets hard and is opposed 
and your own flesh cries out, that it would be easier to just walk away. Because his is the only way. He is the only one that can lead us to life. Let's pray. God, we need your mercy and grace. Who of us would choose that if you didn't help us see? None of us, but you, by your grace, open our eyes. You, by your grace, send your spirit. You take hard hearts and make them soft and deaf ears and make them open. Thank you, Lord God, for showing us there is a narrow gate. For giving us eyes to see it and walk through it. Thank you for Christ who walked it for us. For the glorious hope and confidence we have. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.